Good morning and welcome to Kensington Unitarians, to Essex Church, where our community meets each week for worship. Sarah, our minister, is away this week, but as she often says, our community is made up of all those who walk through our doors. We're also made up of those who listen to us far and wide on our podcast and all the different groups who use our building each week. So wherever you are, wherever you come from, however you are, welcome home. My name is Tristan Yovanovich, and I'm leading the worship this morning for Sarah. And I've been a minister, um, I'm not a minister, I've been a member here. <laughs> I've been a member here for several years now. And I wanted to talk this morning about stillness and movement. We'll light our chalice with some words from Deborah Falk. A chalice lit in our midst is a symbol of our liberal faith, a faith built on the foundation of freedom, reason, and tolerance, a faith sustained by acts of kindness and justice, a faith that visions a world flourishing with equality for all her people, a faith that demands the living out of goodness, a faith that requires thoughtfulness, a faith of wholeness, and this tiny flame is the symbol of the spark of all this within each of us. God be praised for so much that fills our hearts with life and joy in the wonder of the earth and the gladness of fellowship. Our lives are surrounded by so much that is good, and we are grateful. But we remember the cost of these things. The beauty and bounty of the earth comes out of striving and conflict and pain. Our homes, our daily bread, the safety of our lives come from toil and danger undergone by men and women. The civilization we enjoy did not come only from wisdom and calm endeavor. It came also out of folly and blindness and self-seeking. We cannot understand these things. Good and evil are inextricably bound together, it seems. We can only serve the good as truly as we see it. And so, Divine Spirit, we pray that in these critical days, when our hearts are anxious and troubled, we may have light enough and courage enough to choose wisely and act truly. We remember in our prayers the troubled centers of the world. Alas, they are so many, especially when we think in terms of human life and suffering. We are bound up with the lives of others, and yet so cut off from them, 
So with all our good will, our ideas evaporate into noble words which cannot change the issue. It is perhaps best for us that we should have no final peace in our hearts. The world needs our discontent. It needs our struggle. It is the touch of thy cleansing spirit on our hearts which must hurt before it can heal. And we're all in the same case. That is why we must respond to the needs of others. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot save anyone else. But together, we can do something to lift one another up. And we offer ourselves, imperfect as we are, though we may still hold some of the water of life. Amen. One of my favorite books, spiritual books, is by Paulo Coelho. It's The Manual of the Warrior of Light. And so I've plucked a few of the aphorisms from there and his um, explanation of them and edited them slightly. And we're going to read them as two voices. The warrior of light concentrates on the small miracles of daily life. You know your own, your own faults and limitations, but you do all you can to maintain your good humor in moments of crisis. The warrior of light is always trying to improve. Every blow of your sword carries with it centuries of wisdom and meditation. Every blow needs to have the strength and skill of all the warriors of the past who, even today, continue to bless the struggle. Each movement during combat honors the movements that the previous generations tried to transmit through the tradition. You, warrior, develop the beauty of your blows. The warrior of light has the qualities of a rock. When you are on flat terrain, everything remains stable. People can build their houses upon you. When, however, you are placed on a slope, then you reveal your strength. At such moments, the warrior is a devastating force and no one can stop you. A warrior of light thinks about war and peace and knows how to act in accordance with the circumstances. The warrior of light sometimes behaves like water flowing around the obstacles. Occasionally, resisting might mean being destroyed, and so you adapt to the circumstances. Therein lies the strength of water. It cannot be shattered by a hammer or wounded by a knife. The waters of a river adapt themselves to whatever route proves possible, but the river never forgets its one objective, the sea. After a certain point, its power is absolute. The warrior of light knows that it is impossible to live in a state of complete relaxation. You have learnt from the archer that in order to shoot your arrow any distance, you must hold the bow taut. 
You have learnt from the stars that only an inner explosion allows them to shine. The warrior notices that when a horse is about to jump over a fence, it tenses all its muscles. But you never confuse tension with anxiety. All warriors of light have felt afraid to go into battle. All warriors of light have, at some time in the past, lied or betrayed someone. All warriors of light have trodden a path that was not theirs. All warriors of light have suffered for the most trivial of reasons. All warriors of light have, at one point at least, believed that they were not warriors of light. All warriors of light have failed in their spiritual duties. All warriors of light have said yes when they wanted to say no. All warriors of light have hurt someone they love. That is why they are warriors of light. Because they have been through all this and yet have never lost hope of being better than they are. Sakyo Mipam Rinpoche is the leader of the Shambhala lineage of the Buddhist tradition. He grew up in the United States and is a very accomplished runner. And he runs marathons and when he goes around the world um, to teach, he very much likes to run in the different environments he encounters. And he's written a very wonderful book about using running as a form of meditation. And he speaks here about the difficulty we encounter in the beginning. In running and in meditation, the beginning can be the most challenging time. It can be difficult because we are attempting to change our habits. In running, we are trying to change our physical habits. And in meditation, we are attempting to change our mental habits. In both cases, we need to be very clear in deciding that it's what we want to do. The beginning of running is a fragile time. We are tight, we don't have much stamina, and we tire easily. Determination and exertion are essential. We are taking our body from being sedentary to being active. Our tiredness and tightness reflect the difficulty of that transition as we increase our heart rate and our blood circulation. This early phase is critical. If we overdo it, the exercise is too intense and we stop. If we don't apply ourselves, we never quite develop the habit. What I often recommend in the beginning is walk running, walking interspersed with bouts of running. This gentle and integrated approach seems to work well for beginners. Running does not become overwhelming. And at the same time, the short bursts of running allow the heart rate to rise and the blood to flow. Even ultramarathoners use this technique of running and walking. In the beginning, like many runners, I found the first 20 minutes or so the hardest part. I thought, I'm just not in shape. So it seems natural that I would feel a level of discomfort. 
Sometimes I felt like I wasn't going to be able to run for more than just a few minutes. My legs felt heavy, disconnected from the body. Later, when I was in better shape, I still had periods of light discomfort at the beginning of a run. I realized that this has nothing to do with being in shape or out of shape. It's just the body and the nervous system switching from being sedentary to being active. Even now, if I stop running for a few days and then start up again, I feel like I've lost a lot of my fitness. When I told this to my trainer, she replied, Rinpoche, I don't think you've lost any fitness in the last few days at all. It's just that the nerves in the body have to be awakened again. Conversely, in meditation, the initial phase can be challenging for the opposite reason. We have to slow down. When we first sit down and begin to meditate, the mind has been very busy. It's been speeding around, and now we are encouraging it to move more slowly by focusing on the breath. In the beginning, we might feel impatient and agitated, but this has more to do with our mind not being comfortable with the new speed limit than it does with the meditation itself. In the beginning of running and meditation, one of the biggest obstacles is laziness. One kind of laziness is basic laziness, in which we are unable to extract ourselves from the couch. In this case, just a little bit of exercise can send a message to the body that it is time to move forward. Even putting on workout clothes and beginning to stretch helps bring us out of this. By the same token, sitting down to follow the breath for just five minutes has the power to move us out of lays. Another form is that we don't make time in our busy, speedy life to go for a run or to sit down and practice. Another obstacle is forgetting the instruction. Even though we have gotten ourselves to the meditation seat, we forget to apply the technique. We were instructed just to focus on the breathing and release our thoughts. However, instead of following these instructions, we are either just spacing out or thinking. This is like putting on our running shoes, our shorts and t-shirt, and then just standing there. Of course, we all have our own experiences. If we don't push ourselves enough, we don't grow. But if we push ourselves too much, then we regress. What is enough will change, depending on where we are and what we are doing. In that sense, the present moment is always some kind of beginning. Partly because it's not easy to claim that one is a writer until one has been paid for something one has written, I have to append to the what do you do question, I'm also a trainer. And I'm one of those trainers who screams at people whilst they ride bicycles or get in their face and make sure that they do push-ups properly. <laughs> but it's really quite fun. I get to help people exercise and I get to see their results and help them see their results. And sometimes it's instant. And I get to help them on a path that matches a routine to their physical and, I hope, their spiritual needs. That second part is essential. Plus, I get paid to exercise. I got serious about going to the gym when I was a teenager, 
when I discovered that team sports didn't have to be the answer. And it was also at the same time that I started to meditate. And I would force myself to sit. And now I have found that the two are not mutually exclusive activities. Meditation has a comfortable role as I move. It rarely happens, though, on a cushion. It is often said that the body is the temple of the soul. And by and large, I agree with this. Our bodies are all we are born with and all we die with. And if there is such a thing as a soul, then our bodies are most likely heavily attached to it, at least while we're alive. So what we do with our bodies is of the utmost importance. And I'm not going to condemn smoking or eating or not exercising because we can all make our own decisions. But at its base, being in touch with our bodies is part of what it means to be human. And I might even take that a step further and say that being in touch with our bodies is part of what it means to be spiritual. Besides, not everybody is good at sitting still. I don't know about you, but I find it difficult to sit still in meditation for more than about 10 or 15 minutes. I feel much more meditative on a bike, running down the street or through a park, or allowing my body to work without thinking about it at all, doing Olympic lifts, relying on muscle memory. And when I'm moving like that, my brain is free to have fuzzy thinking moments, allowing me to reach aha moments without sitting and racking my brains. When I hit a bump in the writing process, I would much rather than just hit the squat rack. It allows me moments of mindfulness. Because whatever activity we're doing, there is always room for focus. When we walk or run, we can feel our feet on the pavement. We can listen to the birds in the park. When we paint, we can watch the brush move across the canvas, leaving the trail of paint. When we sing, we can feel the breath unite our body. We can meld always with our target. And when we're there, what next? The same thing as when we're sitting to meditate. We have to breathe. I think the two words that trainers use the most, at least I use the most, are breathe and abs, as in use them. Depending on the sport one engages in, there are different modes of breathing. But eventually, one stops even thinking about the breathing and drops into the appropriate pattern. And then we break through the movement so that the body works independently and all one is thinking about, and I'm not sure that thinking is quite the right word, is the next step, the next kilometer, the next rep. The Japanese refer to this state as satori, where mind and body and spirit align. Before doing a heavy lift, I breathe. I shake my limbs, I mime the motion, and I imagine myself successfully completing the lift. And then I breathe again, 
relying on my breath and muscle memory, the challenge disappears. My body knows what it's doing. All I have to do is trust it. But sometimes I fail. Whatever it is we do, sometimes we all fail. Perseverance is not a pushy... The batteries are dying in there. Um, Perseverance is not a pushy or a forceful path. And the writers of Working Out, Working Within are very keen to make this point clear. You just have to relax and be patient and allow the process to happen. Physical and inner fitness are part of a never-ending process. And trying to be perfect just won't work. Taoism encourages us to give in to imperfection. Else the anxiety caused by chasing this impossible goal will diminish us over all. I often remind people, particularly the university freshmen who I induct into a gym life, that most of what we're doing is psychological. It doesn't matter if your muscles can lift X amount of weight. You have to know you can do it. And then once you have reached that point, there is one vision of connectedness. And we can calmly watch the natural unfolding of events. And when we're finished, we need to rest as much as we needed the challenge. When I first started going to the gym, I would never have guessed that some kind of warrior spirituality would be my chosen way of thinking about it. I hated gym class at school with a passion, and I am not competitive at all, except with myself, and I generally find the world's increased pressure to compete in all walks of life to be very oppressive. Jerry Lynch and Chung Lang Al Huang write that with no need to win, victory is yours. We heard earlier about the warrior of light from Paulo Coelho's perspective. There are many more of his, there are many more of his aphorisms in that collection. But one can always improve, learn to give in, or be a rock without resistance. We have all been afraid, suffered, and stopped believing in ourselves. And that's why we're human. And so what about peace? Because warriors are fighters, no? And physical activity is often seen as aggressive, especially in competitive sports. But I find it is a, it is a wonderful way to deal with my aggression positively. In The Art of Peace, Morehi Ushiba, the founder of Aikido, says that we should keep our minds circular and our bodies triangular. The triangle is the generation of energy at its most stable physical form. It is solidity and the basis of control. The art of peace, he writes, begins in us. 
Everyone has a spirit that can be refined and a body that can be trained. And we are here for no other purpose than to realize our inner enlightenment. In this way, we can nurture the warrior within. We can think of our warming up and the heat in our bodies generated during physical activity, like the fires in which blacksmiths work their craft. In these fires, we can work on ourselves. Our breath is the bellows, and our only real connection to the universe, the union of fire and water, the union to the holy sound. So when it comes to inner fitness, you have to believe in yourself. You have to let go, and you have to be who you really are as you tread the path, because nobody's watching you in the gym except you. And you don't have to sit still to meditate. I'd like to finish with a tiny story retold by Lin Shen Huang. The stonecutter was unappreciative of who he was. Seeing a wealthy merchant, he desired to be such. When he became one, he realized that even with all his power, he still had to bow to the king. So now he wanted to be king. Then he noticed that the sun could still make him uncomfortable with its heat, and so he desired to be the sun. But the cloud blocked him out, so he became a cloud. But the wind pushed him around, so he became the wind. The only thing he couldn't push was a boulder. What could be more powerful than a boulder? He asked, sitting there comfortably. And then he felt one of his friends, also a stone cutter, pounding him with a chisel. Amen. May the protectors of this world and the guardians of the ways of the gods and of the rulers teach us the techniques of peace and enable us to meet every challenge. Amen.